Welcome to Credentialing Insights, a podcast from the Institute for Credentialing Excellence. Join us as we dive into thought-provoking discussions with subject matter experts on the topics that matter most to the credentialing community. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to the inaugural DEI podcast for the Institute for Credentialing Excellence. I am your host, Dr. Delmar Lee. I'm a certified diversity executive and global vice president for education and credentialing for the Institute for Diversity Certification. Today's topic concerns the impact of the ruling of the Supreme Court of the United States, SCOTUS, uh, on DEI. The impact of the verdict of SCOTUS sent vibrations through the world of DEI. This series will highlight what the ruling really meant and the need for increased efforts of credential practitioners in the DEI space. To provide the perspectives on this topic, I have two guests, Julia Judish, Special Counsel for Pillsbury, Winthrop, Shaw and Pittman, LLP, and Mark Franco, Counsel for Whiteford, Taylor and Preston, LLP. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Indeed. Before we get into the discussion on the topic, can each of you please give our audience a little background on yourself, about the ICE and about the work that you do. Julia, would you go first for me, please? Sure. Um, I'm with the nonprofit organizations group at Pillsbury, um, but I also have background as an employment lawyer. I work with a lot of credentialing organizations, certification organizations, and accreditation organizations, including ICE and NCCA. Um, and also am an advisor to the Professional Certification Coalition, which is co-headed by ICE in connection with um, the American Society of Association Executives. So in all of these capacities, I, I've been watching and been advising on DEI initiatives um, and legislation and court decisions affecting DEI efforts. Fantastic. So I guess you're a little bit busy is what you're telling me. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you, Julia. Mark, please. Yeah, hi. So uh, similar to Julia, I also work in a uh, practice group that serves nonprofits here at Whiteford. Um, before becoming an attorney, I actually worked at a credentialing body. Um, and I was there for 12 years, so know many of the ins and outs of, um, of credentialing in that way also. Um, I'm also the current chair of the Institute for Credentialing Excellence's DEI committee, and we're working on a number of DEI initiatives on behalf of the um, ICE membership. So happy to um, be a part of this conversation today, and I, I know um, it'll be a good one. Fantastic, fantastic. I am glad to hear about your credentialing and to get to know you too, because I'll be quite honest, uh, before our conversation, uh, at the Institute for Diversity Certification, we felt like we were alone in this struggle, to be quite honest. We've put on web webinars and podcasts because there was panic when, when the ruling came down from the Supreme Court because for people who were not as knowledgeable as you, and I hope you shine some light on what that actually meant to the ruling from the Supreme Court, there was a um, almost an abandoning ship type mentality. So I I'm, obviously I'm gonna be taking notes because I'll need what you're gonna provide me. And uh, I can't wait to hear what you all have to offer. Like I said before, there are many who panicked at the ruling of the SCOTUS, and some feared that their positions that were directly connected to DEI would just go away. 
I have actually met several practitioners. I met one person who was the vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion at a college. And um, there were uh, also efforts to create positions in the DEI. There were uh, C-suite positions. And I mentioned about the person at the uh, community college, community college in specific, said that she had to change her title. I'm gonna get straight now from anything that could be related to DEI, as long as DEI was not in the title itself. So with that, and you can imagine people, as I said, who are not as informed as you two are uh, panicking. Uh, my question here is, um, what do you think was that the change of heart for the ruling of the SCOTUS? And also, is there still a business case for diversity? Uh, let's begin with Julia, please. I'd love to hear your perspective. Sure. Um, well, the, the anecdote that you told may be a result of state legislation that's um, there. There has been legislation in both Texas and Florida enacted that seeks to abolish DEI offices at public colleges and universities. But that's a very separate thing from the SCOTUS decision in June of this year, the Students for Fair Admission decision. Um, it has had broad ripple effects um, yeah. politically, but as a matter of its legal holding was very narrow and would not affect, it has no direct application to any non-college, non-university. Really what it did was um, there are background principles constitutionally and in statutes, in, including Title VI, which applies to federally funded programs that prohibit using race as a factor in decisions, in employment decisions, selection decisions, and admissions decisions. But 20 years ago, the Supreme Court made an exception for that and held that using race as a plus factor in the holistic admissions process was narrowly tailored enough and necessary to support the compelling state interest in diversity. What the Supreme Court decision in June held was not that diversity is not, a, it, it did not hold that diversity is no longer an important state interest. What it did hold was that the methods that Harvard and UNC, the defendants in those cases used, were not narrowly tailored to achieve that interest. And also that the exception that had been recognized by the court was always intended to be temporary and they closed that exception. Okay. So the law as respect to certification organizations, employers, non-universities or universities and non-admissions is just what it was prior to June. Okay. Mark, I, I saw you agreeing with, with a lot of what Julia was saying. What, what you're smiling, give me a little bit more. Look like that you can go a little bit deeper and give me some additional perspective. So I'm definitely interested and I'm taking notes. Yeah, it's, it's a really great distinction that Julia made about the legal implications versus the practical implications versus the political implications. You know, all the things that she mentioned about the case are very accurate. In fact, the court in their in their holding said that there's there's basically nothing that prevents a school from considering what an applicant has to say about uh, about race in their in their essay. You know, th I think there's still a question of, of 
you know, how schools will be able to potentially consider race. Now, it's not through the outright methods that um, UNC and, and Harvard were applying. And it, if you looked at sort of the results of their admissions process, I think that brought into question sort of the methods also. But in terms of just a broad brush to DEI, I mean, I totally agree with Julia that as far as legal implications, there's there doesn't seem to be anything um, that's going to be of, of real significance at this time. However, that doesn't prevent um, sort of the naysayers and other types of similar folks from using this as, as, as a win in their books or from using it to build momentum against um, broad DEI initiatives. But from a legal perspective, it, it really shouldn't have significant impact right now. Hmm. I, I agree with Mark, and, and if you're if you're looking for a knockdown brawl, this is not <laughs> not going to be <laughs> that opportunity. <laughs> there are lessons that certification organizations can take from the aftermath of the SCOTUS decision. The Department of Justice and the Department of Education, shortly after the decision came out, issued guidance to. Um, colleges and universities about how they can continue to support diversity. And they emphasize that it is as important as ever to engage in efforts to admit and support diverse student populations and underscored all of the benefits of diversity, not just to the underrepresented students who are admitted, but to everyone from having a diverse student body. The lessons from that guidance were to lean into inclusion mm -hmm. and avoid exclusion. So their pipeline building and outreach, that can be done in an inclusive way, targeting underrepresented in the guidance, underrepresented high schools with, with large populations of underrepresented students, totally lawful to go out and redouble efforts there, having programs that help the success of minority students or for employers, minority employees, um, all of that is fine as long as people are not excluded on the basis of their race. Mm -hmm. So inclusivity and really, it is more important than ever to engage in DEI efforts because the affirmative action system for colleges and university was, was a very efficient way <laughs> of building more diverse student bodies who were earning degrees in colleges and universities and having that pipeline in the workforce. Now there's not that shortcut. So um, there needs to be continued intentional and lawfully crafted DEI efforts. Yeah, we're, we're, we're actually um, on the DEI committee. We're um, focusing on inclusion very specifically right now um, because of a couple of things. So um, McKinsey, the consulting firm, they've done several research studies on inclusion, and they found that while and, and they surveyed um, you know, uh, lots of different companies and, and, um, and 
in many different countries. And what they found is that while folks were recognizing the efforts that their employers were doing with respect to diversity initiatives, the majority of them still felt excluded at the personal level. So, and if you look at, um, you know, I talked about, uh, I, I mentioned this briefly earlier, if you look at the specific admissions processes at UNC and Harvard, the number of, um, uh, the percentage of students from any particular race varied very little, just one, one to three percentage points on an annual basis over the course of 10 years. So were these admission processes simply focused on just that first part, diversity, and not really looking at other aspects. I mean, that's what it looks like, at least from the numbers. So I, mean, I, I totally agree. And this is something that we're looking at at ICE, um, that uh, you know, inclusion uh, may need to, there may need to be some sort of shift towards really understanding how, how inclusion um, needs to be considered when looking at your DEI initiatives. And, and inclusion by inclusion by design is a strategy that certification organizations should build into their certification development. An example by analogy of why inclusion by design can be important for certification organizations. My kids went to public schools K through 12, but at one point, uh, one of my kids took, um, I think it's called the, the SSAT, uh, uh, an entrance exam, standardized entrance exam um, for private schools. And when I, I picked him up after the exam and I asked about the questions, he told me about one of them, which I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was an, one of those analogy questions. And it was, jib is to yacht, as, and I forget what the other <laughs> end of it was. I, I, I'm not a yachter, so, so I didn't know it, but I was also thinking, this is assuming experiences, world lived experiences of the kids who are taking this test to, for entrance to private school that is not very inclusive. <laughs> Yes. Um, socioeconomically or, or by region, there are lots of landlocked places where no one yachts, or maybe people don't read books about yachts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so as part of developing a certification exam, you convene subject matter experts and you do a job analysis and, and your subject matter experts are shaping that job analysis. If you don't have diversity in your subject matter experts, you may get a job analysis that feeds into what your certification assessment questions are that really are not inclusive and representative of what experts in that profession, what you're testing for. Here's here's what I'm here's what I'm hearing, and, and, that, and that concerns me. Like I said, you two are very well versed in the, in the legal aspect and the implication the implications of it, and how it should be actually operationalized. Uh, We'll, we'll, we'll stick to the world, the world of education for the time being. But I, I think there's almost a deliberateness either in the narrative or in the actions that we're so focused on race that we forget that DEI is more than about race. So if we really expand the lens, I heard you all constantly mention the, the inclusivity piece. 
That's really what DEI is all about, is having that diverse perspective and having an inclusive voice such that all are considered in the major areas, as you mentioned in the standardized test. It's very easy to bias a test if you design a test around a limited few and the lived experiences are only, you know, relative to that demographic and then apply that graphic, I mean, uh, uh, um, nationally. I'm from Ohio. There's no water around me. We don't know about boats. And, and my thing is, what does that have to do with me being able to get into a math program where I'm focusing on mathematically based principles? But these very things are used as a standard, but through increasing our inclusivity and not cherry picking what diversity, equity, and inclusion is all about, we can actually change the conversation such there is not the panic that we were talking about. And you all mentioned the education piece, but you also mentioned the, the credentialing, which is where I want to go to this thing, because we have taken the ruling that would seem to be very education focused and applied it everywhere. It just so happens, I'm in North Carolina, by the way. Chapel Hill is like an hour and a half from me. So it sent like a wave of get rid of DEI all over the state. I mean, like a laser beam because the information that you all are sharing, you mentioned this is not about a brawl. It's really not. It's really about sharing that information to as broadly an audience as possible. Uh, matter of fact, I see credentialing, specifically um, certification and licensure, as fundamental to, to, to practicing professional work. But because we're talking about people inadvertently and sometimes deliberately being excluded, do you see credentialing as doing the same thing, limiting people's ability to actually enter into this space because it is something else that has to be done to perform in a certain role? Mark, what do you think about that? Do you see yeah, credentialing as actually creating? My argument to that would be, um, you know, it, it, it's the it's actually the other way around. I mean, credentialing is is inherently in inclusive because uh, you know credentialing is is really just about demonstrating uh, compliance to a, a a various standard, and anybody can do that. I think where you potentially run into problems related to exclusion is um, when you're not thinking thoughtfully about eligibility requirements or renewal requirements. You know, when you have financial barriers potentially to credentialing or where you have educational barriers to credentialing. Now, you know, depending on the program, those may make sense, but they should be made based on thoughtful conversations, based on diverse feedback, based on um, sort of the, the needs of the profession or the particular industry and not sort of, you know, um, done without those types of considerations. Yeah, and there have been studies done licensing and certification that have shown that both certification and licensing reduce the wage gap based on the gender wage gap and the race wage gap theory is <laughs> that they counter implicit bias that would otherwise be in effect there. And that when you have someone who has earned a credential that is respected and, and recognized, there, there aren't negative stereotypes about their abilities be, because the credential signifies they, they have those abilities. 
So Mark is absolutely right that there needs to be thoughtful um, by certification organizations, thought put into why do we have these eligibility requirements? Is, is this the disparate impact? Creative disparate impact needs to be um, included in the concept of DEI, as you said, more than race, disabilities that don't affect a person's ability to perform the or have the knowledge, have the skills that are being assessed for the certification requirements or accommodations that enable those who are neurodivergent or have other differences to access and, and show what they know. There are regulations under the ADA that most kinds of disabilities require certification organizations to administer their exams in a way that best ensure that the exam measures the skills or knowledge is intended to measure, not the impairment or limitation of the test taker. So all of these go into the mix of, of, of DEI and frankly of a sound and robustly developed certification exam, job analysis, cut scores, all, everything you, you put into determining is this a, a valid and reliable certification such that it will be considered reputable and credible and people will see, yeah, the, this is a meaningful credential and, and we're looking for it if it's a voluntary credential or it's appropriate for a state to require that credential as a condition of licensing. But it's also okay to exclude people because they don't have the expertise you're measuring, <laughs> right? That's a different yes. kind of exclusion. Yes. And and again, uh, I think, you know, what you're bearing out clearly and Mark as well, is the need, first of all, to understand what is required to produce a quality product? What is required to create a safe space for us all to operate? We look at the health field. I, I think about, you know, with my, I have the highest respect for credentialing. What would happen when we talk about providing a quality of care for people who are not licensed and there isn't a board or, or there isn't some requirement for a person to maintain that credentialing? So, I like the fact that, that you mentioned that there is kind of a, a, a leveling effect when we start to consider uh, licensure and certification and the wage gap. That's something we've been dealing with forever and still dealing with now. How do we handle the fact that there is a, a, a disparate treatment in people who have equal qualifications and should be paid fairly? When we have something that is concretely measurable, which is what we're talking about when we talk about certification and licensure, right? This is something that should be valued, that should be promoted. And I think here again, this is part of the conversation that should be promoted that is not. Do you see this mark perhaps as being something that what I call teeter-totting on anti-intellectualism? In other words, because there is a certain amount of rigor required for credentialing. Hey, Do you think? Yeah, I, I don't think so because you know I've I've always looked at things uh, you know sort of based on a spectrum and you know. For many people, it's it's not really accessible or feasible to um, get a four-year degree, for example, or to get multiple degrees. And what I've always loved about the world of credentialing is, you know, part of its core is enabling people to uh, go out there and 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 do a job. 
right? Whether it's um, in the crane industry or um, as a healthcare technician in one of the various fields, or it's in finance or some other profession, it's another means. I've always seen it as another means for folks to be able to go out there and make a living. And so, um, I, you know, I, I can't, I don't understand necessarily um, why folks uh, don't want to provide those type of, types of opportunities to individuals, because again, there's, there's a spectrum. There'll be a need for um, folks with those four year and, and multiple degrees. And then there's also a need for uh, folks that can become certified and show competence in a particular profession and be able to perform their duties in a, you know, in a safe and, and quality manner that benefits the general public. Julia, you, you, you're muted. Well, uh, that certification is also a wonderful means of getting out of a, a rut or a path you set for yourself or someone else set for you because it can it can be an entryway certification to a new career it can be a mid-career way of differentiating yourself from others depending on the certification and it one unfortunate um, effect of the SCOTUS decision in June may be that some of the more elite colleges become less diverse and credentialing and certifications are there to mitigate the effect of that. Um, for people who haven't gone to as you know fancy a brand name college or as Mark said, may not have gone to a four-year college, if they meet the eligibility requirements to earn certification in the field, they've demonstrated their expertise. It's, it's not necessarily their educational pedigree that the certification becomes their ticket to the profession, their ticket to respect. So, so cert certification is here as, as part of the net in the wake of the SCOTUS decision. You brought up an interesting point in both of you, the affordability component that creates another pathway for I'm going to say reasonable employment because I know plumbers and electricians that are making $85 to $100 an hour, depending upon their level of expertise that they're a master, they're really making very, very good wages without the debt that could be created through a college degree or a college experience. Now, we're college educated. We love it. Got it. But this says that there's another way. And by valuing the credentials that we're talking about, this is a consideration that should actually be promoted that I don't hear promoted. I'm you know, I retired from the, United, from the United States Air Force and I work with soldier sales and transitioning Marines and in, in the, in the airmen. And one of the things that I always promoted even before it became the thing was certification and license. One, because they travel. Two, it's proof that you know how to do something and the day that you go into that place of employment, you can start providing uh, impact in the bottom line positively. Because historically you and I know unless you're in a highly specialized field, when you go to a place of employment, the first thing they do is put you on a training program. Your credentials signals that you have something of value that can be used the day you walk into the place. If you are degreed individuals, 
those credentials substantiate your lack of experience in the workplace because you haven't had time. So there's advantage upon advantage of it. So I like the fact that you brought up that affordability piece. Um, yeah, and can I just mention that the US military has been a great adopter of requiring certifications. I've seen that in many different industries. Absolutely. Um, I've tried not to heart too hard on the military because I am, I mean, to say that I am extremely biased is a, probably be an understatement, but it was in the military that I really started to realize the value of the certifications because I worked on advanced avionic systems and in order to touch anything, we had to get certified on a lot of different things. But what that set a person up who now don't get it twisted, it was not an easy thing to accomplish because you, know, you and I know the rigor that's put into certification programs and licensure programs are there for a reason. Because we want the people who get these, these credentials to actually be able to be able to be able to contribute something concretely and not create other problems in the workplace where he, she, or they may be working. But yes, the, the military is a I guess that's the genesis of me being such a heavy, a staunch advocate of, of the credentialing piece. Uh, several thoughts. I was gonna talk about the advantages of credentialing. We jumped on that already. As I mentioned earlier, there was a pulling back and you all spoke specifically about the ruling being really almost specific to education, but we still see the, the repercussion of it, the, 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 the reverberations of it in, the, uh, in business and industry. So I think I know the answer, but I have to ask it anyway. Is there a need for them to pull back on their efforts? Is there still a legal and business responsibility to continue this DEI work? I'll say there's a, there's a need for organizations to look at how they are doing DEI work. Because there have been, the, our discussion is titled, you know, implications, <laughs> the students for fair admissions decision. One of the implications have been a spate of new lawsuits, some of them from organizations founded by the same organization that, that brought the admissions affirmative action um, lawsuit. And what they're, what they're doing is, it was colleges and universities were the first target Mm -hmm. Now, um, there have been several law firms that have been sued for fellowship programs in which race was an eligibility factor. And so um, the allegations in the lawsuit were that white law students wouldn't be eligible for the benefits of that, um, those programs. There have been lawsuit, there was a lawsuit a, against an investment management company that alleges that violates the federal law against race discrimination and making of contracts for that fund to have given grants to black women and and limited to black women that that is a very novel theory um, and one that I hope and expect will be unsuccessful um, because it relates to grants rather than contracts, but DEI programs that take shortcuts using race as a decisional factor are getting increased scrutiny and are more vulnerable to lawsuits. But that doesn't mean you just give up and say, oh, we're, we're dropping DEI. It means you are careful and you look and you make sure that you're 
doing it in a way that is both lawful and furthers your objectives. Yeah, there there does seem to be a, a bit of fatigue as it relates to DEI initiatives, uh, and we know companies have been working on these types of in initiatives for a number of years. But but Julie is absolutely correct. You know, uh, one reason that you don't want to pull back and you would do so at your detriment is, is basically the business, the business reason. I mean, the same studies um, that were conducted um, by McKinsey, they showed that they broke these companies into four, into four groups. Uh, and the, the group that had the most diversity, they had an increased almost one third percentage chance to outperform their peers, while the companies in the bottom percentile, they had, it went the other way. They had a almost one third chance to underperform their peers. So it's already an established business case that diversity um, potentially improves your business. However, you know, going back to what Julia said, you shouldn't be doing diversity just for the sake of doing diversity. Right. You, you don't want to have programs that are in place simply to say that you have programs, right? They need to be thoughtful. You need to be doing some evaluation of the ongoing initiatives. And as we've seen in the in the Supreme Court decision, simply just having a certain percentage of folks so that you can claim diversity, um, that may not necessarily be acceptable no. moving forward. Yeah. No. And I'll, I'll add that in addition to the demonstrated, repeatedly demonstrated and documented bottom line benefits of having diverse teams and in greater innovation, greater uh, revenue achievement um, in, in the studies that have been done on this, there's also for those who may not be convinced that, that DEI is you know, worth doing on its own. There's another reason to do uh, engage in DEI efforts anyway. And that is that the attention that is paid to inclusion and fairness from DEI programs also sheds the light on areas in which whatever the organization is or the employer is, may have discriminatory practices in place and that they otherwise wouldn't uncover. Um, one of the implications of the SCOTUS affirmative action decision is that there's been renewed attention, legacy advantages and legacy admissions in colleges and universities and a number of colleges and universities have dropped or reduced the advantage to legacy applicants because they see that once they take away the affirmative action programs they had been relying on, if they continue the legacy programs, that's just going to increase the, the disproportionate um, admission of mostly white applicants because of the historical patterns um, that are reflected in legacy admissions. So th that's an example of, in the university context, of how there can be practices 
that wind up having a discriminatory effect. And that could potentially, for those who are motivated by fear of lawsuits, <laughs> lead to liability down the road. Whereas if you have a DEI program, that is a proactive way of, of looking at what is uh, what are things we can do to be more inclusive? What are the effect of our programs? In the government contractor um, context, there are affirmative action regulations on the books and that have been on the books for decades that mean something different from affirmative action in the college admissions context. There are no quotas there. It is prohibited to consider sex, a race, or ethnicity um, as a decision factor in hiring, promotion, et cetera. But it does require government contractors to gather information, demographic information, analyze their programs, engage in good faith efforts for outreach to identify, are there impediments to equal employment opportunity? For certification boards, they can look at, are there impediments to, to giving our credentials to, qualified individuals or have we designed our certification appropriately let, let me say this because you, you you all have, I, i've taken several notes here I, I can't speak to all of them because we don't have the time but here's the thing i did hear you say that i do want to speak on one how the dei work is conducted mean everything and, and here, here's what i'm hearing that you all are saying uh diversity without equity and inclusion is bad for business, to be quite honest. If you hire a person, just let's say just for the look at the look as a race or, or gender, you know, in other words, we pick out one of a multitude of, of all of the facet that makes up a person, you know, in, intersectionality piece. And then we use that as a sole basis for hiring that person without considering the qualifications of him or her then. We're not doing that business any, 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 any justice. We're not doing that person any justice. And we're doing the field of DEI practice and injustice. So when we talk about how it's practiced, it means everything. We were talking about certification, and I have to say the Institute for Diversity Certification have a very rigorous uh, uh, certification program to include a, a test that was developed, as you said, Judy, Judy by uh, Julie, excuse me, by, uh, by uh, subject matter experts, such that there is not the you have to be in a certain part of the United States or have a certain lived experience to know the requirements to meet the rigors because we establish it and then we, we instruct it and we give you the tools you need to understand what's necessary to practice in this field effectively. Such that when you get into conversations or you're part of a business, you don't create probable lawsuits from unfair hiring practices. You don't create discriminatory looks because you're not considering whether the person should be hired in the first place regardless of their ethnicity or race. I don't like to use race that much, but uh, with race. And that's what we're running into problems. That's why I kept speaking about the criticality of licensure and certification. Because through those processes, we get people in positions who have earned the opportunity to be there. What we're talking about is very complex. We're talking about human personalities. We're talking about dealing with biases that are built in from decades of, of practices that hasn't been challenged, fairly or unfairly. We come up with a, what I consider very good ideas, very good approaches for creating an equitable workplace. But we're going to have resistance. 
because there are people who will tell you how we've been doing business was just fine before all this DEI stuff came up. When all we're doing is saying, expand, expand your lens. Consider that there are more people who are genuinely qualified for the positions that are out there. And all they are being asked is a fair opportunity. Not to disadvantage one to advantage another. The legacy thing you mentioned, Julia, that's gonna be an interesting conversation. Because to be quite honest, the affirmative action that we talk about has always been there. It just hasn't been practiced fairly, right? We have design purposes for how we want things to look, how we want things to be done. And then we affirm those actions by hiring the people who should be fairly able to represent what needs to be done in that workplace. Okay, uh, it's been a fast, what, almost an hour. Let's get some final thoughts. Um, Julia, you're off mute already. Let's just start with you. Uh, final thoughts are uh, that uh, regardless of whether you think that the Supreme Court affirmative action decision was rightly decided, and we won't <laughs> address that um, in, in this podcast, it has shed a light on, on pathways to achievement that are available to minorities in this country. And, and it is incumbent on employers, on certification organizations, um, on professional associations to not just nod and say, oh, well, you know, this, this is, this happened. Um, there's gonna be a ripple effect in terms of um, organizations that have depended on colleges and universities to produce a pipeline of diverse qualified candidates. And it may take some time for colleges and universities to develop other strategies that result in as diverse student populations. And so looking at eligibility requirements, looking at outreach, um, I was uh, talking to the CEO of the certification organization last week about uh, their organizations going into middle schools and talking about their profession to sixth graders who otherwise might not have thought about their profession. And this is at least a decade before the sixth graders would be applying to the education programs that lead to that credential. Um, and that's pipeline building. That's opening people's eyes to opportunities that are available to them that they might not otherwise have. So we've talked about how you design your certification program, but there are other ways to think outside the box as well um, and invest long-term in building uh, a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive uh, profession and um, credentialed cadre of your profession. Mark? Just to sort of echo some of those thoughts, I mean, there's there's appears to be a lot of scrutiny on DE&I right now, and it's not necessarily the 
kind of scrutiny that we want, right? There's scrutiny due to fatigue. There's scrutiny due to these um, Supreme Court decisions. There's scrutiny due to the state laws that are being passed that potentially affect the ENI initiatives. And you know, I think we've talked about some of the reasons why um, organizations really can't change their path right now. I mean, in addition to um, improving sort of business operations and the bottom line, there's you know having a, a robust DEI program um, helps you mitigate some potential legal risks, um, and it's also you know it's it's very consistent with what many of these organizations what their social missions are. So you know I, I think the you know the takeaway for me is not to not to let this Supreme Court decision really um, dissuade you from um, moving, uh, you, know, uh, you know, full steam ahead on your DEI initiatives. And, you know, uh, on behalf of the DEI committee, we're certainly working um, within the ICE community to try and help you do that. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, obviously, it's been a pleasure for me learning, learning from you all and hearing your perspectives. Uh, my thing is in the presence of all sorts of confounding information, um, it is through informing professionals and those professionals informing the leaders of business and industries that we get um, the correct information out there to change the narrative. As you two have pointed out, there are, are all kinds of advantages to a diverse work, workplace. What is critical, I like what, Judy, what, what Julia said, and that was that we have diverse and qualified people in the workplaces not just diverse people for the look of it. And like you said, Mark, if, if we get into hiring people for the look of it, we could very easily find ourselves in some legal entanglements that shouldn't otherwise be there if we did this thing the right way. I like to repeat, you know, diversity without inclusion is bad for business and inclusion without equity is not good for business at all. Because when a person has been invited into the room, he, she, or they should have an equal voice in impacting the bottom line positively. Mark pointed out the research bears it clearly through McKinsey that where there's diversity, there's improved opportunity for uh, impacting uh, the bottom line positively. Productivity increases, creativity increases, and innovation uh, increases. With all of these advantages, this is a narrative that we need to promote. Not that this is a zero sum game whereby letting anyone else in, everybody else loses. Fast hour. As I said, I enjoyed it. I thanks uh, the ICE for allowing us to create this podcast, and maybe we'll get a chance to do it again. Yes, have a rest of a fantastic day. Thank you, and stay safe. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. You bet. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Credentialing Insights, a podcast from the Institute for Credentialing Excellence. Be sure to subscribe to our channel wherever you listen to podcasts, so you can be the first to hear these episodes each month. If you have a suggestion for a future discussion or want to sponsor an episode, reach out to info at credentialingexcellence.org. For more great thought leadership content, visit Credentialing Insights at credentialinginsights.org. Thank you again for tuning in.